If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Carlo loved two things in life, his computers and his Catholic faith. In many ways, Carlo Acutis was a pretty typical Italian teenager. He liked to play video games and surf the internet. He was also a devout Catholic who attended Mass daily. He grew up in a fairly average middle-class family in Milan. His mother worked in the publishing industry and his father worked in insurance. But one thing that made Carlos stand out from other boys his age was how seriously he took his faith. The teenager devoted his life toward helping others in need. He used to donate his pocket money to the city's poorest residents. Eventually, he found a way to turn his digital hobbies into yet another way to serve the people. By the age of 10, Carlo had built a website that documented religious miracles around the world. It wasn't long before word spread and hundreds of parishes across the globe began using the information Carlo gathered to share the word of these miracles to their own flocks. Tragically, Carlo died of leukemia in 2006 at the age of 15. But his website still lives on to this day. And according to the Catholic Church, so too does Carlo's ability to help those less fortunate. In 2013, the church announced that a Brazilian priest prayed in the name of Carlo Acutis to bring aid to a six-year-old boy suffering a congenital defect of the pancreas. The boy was vomiting and at risk of death. But after three days of prayers, the boy got better and started eating again. As the years have gone on, Carlo's parents continually get letters telling them about miracles that have occurred because of their son. As a result, on October 10, 2020, Pope Francis held a beatification ceremony in Carlo's honor. This put the millennial teen on the fast track to become the very first patron saint of the internet. For the first thousand years of the church, there was no formal process in Rome for becoming a saint. The first Catholics to become revered as saints were people who died under Roman persecution. Those martyrs who gave their lives in the name of God were almost instantly regarded as saints after that. But by the 6th and 7th centuries, the number of saints was booming. So the church stepped in and pumped the brakes. At first, Catholic bishops were given the task of determining who could or could not achieve sainthood. Then around the year 1200, Pope Alexander III declared that only the Pope could officially declare someone a saint. By the 17th century, the Vatican had begun to formalize the rules for becoming a saint. A non-martyr would need to have performed four posthumous miracles, usually healings, but the grounds for what constitutes a true miracle are a little nebulous. Today, the Catholic Church requires a team of doctors or other experts to certify that a miracle has taken place, such as in the case of the surprise recovery of the six-year-old boy from Brazil. 
From there, the Pope will begin the process of beatification, the official announcement that a person is considered worthy of sainthood. After that, a lengthy investigation is conducted to determine if the saint status should be granted. For many centuries, the process involved the Church appointing a person known as a devil's advocate to argue against the case for sainthood. But then in 1983, Pope John Paul II revised the Code of Canon Law, streamlining the path to sainthood and eliminating the devil's advocate position. Since then, the rules have continued to evolve, but each year the Pope still continues to declare new saints. With all the thousands of Catholic saints that have come and gone through the years, there have been plenty of interesting stories that go with them. Some uplifting, many tragic, and some downright disturbing. In this episode, I'd like to tell you about some of the strangest and most macabre stories of the saints that ever occurred. Because these tales all happened after they were dead. I'm Nate Hale, and I'll probably never be named the patron saint of podcasting. And this is The Conspirators. They used to be friends. Thomas Beckett was the son of a London merchant, and he may never have made much of an impact on history were it not for one key detail. It turned out Thomas had some really powerful friends. His best friend, in fact, was a young man named Henry. The two of them grew up together during the 12th century and remained practically inseparable. They hunted together, they played chess together. People often claimed the two men had but one heart, and one mind. Which was fortunate for Thomas because at age 21, Henry II became King of England, and Thomas was appointed Henry's Chancellor. Throughout the early part of Henry's reign, the two men worked side by side to bring a new era of legal reform to England. In Henry's realm, everyone had the right to a fair trial. Under King Henry, trial by jury became the law of the land. The king's judges traveled the country administering what was referred to as the law of all free men. There was only one entity that stood outside the rule of law, and that was the Catholic Church, which made its own laws and had its own courts. As a result, a bishop could get away with practically anything, even murder, if he simply claimed the benefit of the clergy. In fact, the worst punishment that could happen to a bishop put on trial by the church would be they could be expelled from the priesthood. As you can probably imagine, Henry didn't like that the church remained above the laws he'd laid down. So when the Archbishop of Canterbury died in May 1161, the king saw an opportunity. He immediately appointed his best friend and most trusted advisor Thomas to the newly vacant position, thinking now he would be able to get the church under control. But he was wrong. Instead, Thomas experienced a major religious conversion and threw himself completely into his new role. This newly born-again Thomas Beckett began wearing a sackcloth shirt that reached to his knees and swarmed with insects. He ate very little food and would no longer drink wine, only water. At first, Henry and Thomas's friendship continued, but over time it became strained as the two men kept clashing over religious privilege. Henry insisted that his word was law, but Thomas kept arguing with his best friend that the church stood above the laws of men. 
This all came to a head in 1164 when some of Henry's supporters began very publicly accusing Thomas of being a traitor to the crown. Then on January 30th, 1164, Henry presided over an assembly of some of the most powerful clergy in the realm at Clarendon Castle. In order to draft a collection of 16 constitutions that would establish rules over just how much power the Catholic Church would have. But even though Thomas admitted before the council that he generally agreed with the substance of these constitutions, he still refused to sign them. After that, King Henry felt he had no choice but to put his best friend on trial for contempt. Thomas was convicted and went into exile in France. During this time, he continued to clash with Henry from abroad, even threatening to excommunicate his best friend at one point. Thomas spent the next six years in exile. Then in the year 1170, Pope Alexander III sent some diplomats from Rome to end the dispute. They managed to work out a deal where Thomas could safely return to Canterbury, but that didn't turn out to be the end of the trouble between Thomas and Henry. In June of 1170, three archbishops went ahead and crowned Henry's son at York. Thomas saw this as an affront to his authority since he had nothing to do with it. In November of that year, Thomas excommunicated the three bishops. This was a point he doubled down on during a fiery speech he gave on Christmas Day, 1170 denouncing the coronation, and therefore denouncing Henry's son. What exactly happened after that is a little open to interpretation. Multiple versions have been reported. Some claim King Henry directly ordered Thomas's execution, while others say he made a much more vague statement out of exasperation, will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? But in either case, the result was the same. Four of Henry's knights interpreted the king's wishes to be a sentence of death. So they headed to Canterbury to execute Thomas Becket. For his part, Thomas knew it was coming. There was really only so far he could push his best friend before retribution finally came. That chilly December evening, Thomas Becket retired to his chambers. Leaving the doors unlocked for the men he was certain would have come for him. When the four knights encircled him and raised their swords, Thomas Becket merely bowed his head and said, I accept death in the name of the Lord. Then the knights did what they had come to do and began swinging their swords. With the fourth blow, one of them severed the crown of Thomas Becket's head clean off. One of the others, Hugh of Horsey, actually dug his sword into the open skull cavity and flicked some of Thomas's brains onto the floor. After that, he told his fellow knights they should get going, for this man would surely never rise again. Well, that was only sort of true. No, Thomas Beckett didn't come back as a zombie, although admittedly that would be pretty cool. Alas, Thomas Beckett was well and truly dead. But even in death, the saint proved to be a thorn in King Henry's side for years to come. That night after word spread of Becket's demise, hundreds of sobbing townspeople crowded into the church and scooped up his remains. They laid them out on an altar, and from there people began swarming around him trying to dip their fingers in clothing in the blood. That's when the miracle started. A blind woman who rubbed Thomas's blood on her face suddenly declared she could see once again. A sick woman drank some of Thomas's blood she mixed with water and declared herself miraculously healed. 
The following morning, the monks buried Thomas Beckett's body in a marble coffin in the cathedral's crypt. But as word spread of the miracles that occurred with the people who had come in contact with Thomas's remains, swarms of pilgrims began coming to Canterbury hoping to be healed or to witness some other miracle. In 1173, three of Henry's sons, his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, and a group of supporters who were already pretty steamed about Thomas Beckett's murder, tried to stage a revolt against Henry II. After about a year and a half, the revolt failed, but at one point, in an attempt to make amends, Henry publicly humbled himself before Beckett's tomb. King Henry wasn't the only monarch to show up at Thomas Beckett's tomb either. Louis VIII arrived and presented the corpse with a massive ruby, a cup made of pure gold, and a promise that his people would deliver about 1,600 gallons of wine to the cathedral each year. Pretty soon, Canterbury became the most popular pilgrimage spot in all of England. Thomas Beckett's corpse became such a popular tourist attraction that the monks decided to move his remains out of the dank crypt to a main floor shrine festooned in gold and valuable jewels. They built an elaborate rig where, when a pilgrim approached, the monks could raise and lower the jewel-encrusted canopy using a series of pulleys to reveal the gilded casket within. This went on until the Reformation era. In 1538, Henry VIII shocked a great many people when he publicly split with the Catholic Church in order to marry the secretly pregnant Anne Boleyn. After that, Henry's chief minister, Thomas Cromwell, helped the king break away from Rome and made Henry the head of the Church of England. Henry VIII then outlawed the worshipping of Catholic relics. This included Thomas Becket's shrine. King Henry ordered his people to strip the Canterbury Cathedral of all its golden riches. That enormous ruby given to Becket's corpse by Louis VIII ended up being set into a royal ring. After that, the only official record we have of what happened to Thomas Becket's corpse came from the Pope, who gave the rather vague statement that the saint's remains had been burnt and the ashes scattered to the wind. But were they? Today, the only sign of the gilded shrine to Thomas Becket that remains in Canterbury Cathedral is a single white candle that stands on the spot where the shrine once stood. But back in 1888, a team of historians who were searching for the remains of an earlier Norman church made an intriguing discovery. They broke through the floor of the eastern crypt and found a stone coffin filled with bones. They also realized that this particular coffin was unearthed right next to the spot where back in the 12th century, the monks reportedly buried Thomas Becket. This, of course, made everyone wonder if this could really be Beckett's corpse that the monks returned to the spot where it had once been interred. To get a better idea of who these bones might have once belonged to, the team turned them over to a surgeon named W. Pugin Thornton to examine. Thornton couldn't say for certain who the skeleton might have been, but he did personally come to believe they were Beckett's. His report stated that the bones were very old, that they belonged to a man who would have been about Thomas Beckett's same age, and also exhibited evidence of having been fractured from several blows from a large cutting weapon, probably a two-handed sword. Despite this tantalizing evidence, there were still a number of people who remained skeptical that these were indeed the bones of Thomas Beckett. One major discrepancy with the historical record was the fact that the top of the skull wasn't split open. According to historical records, the top of Thomas's skull had been completely severed. But according to Thornton's report, while this particular skull did show signs of trauma, 
it remained otherwise intact. While many skeptics remained unconvinced, Thornton's report was enough to convince the church that these were indeed the remains of Thomas Becket. In 1920, another report was issued by the Archbishop of Canterbury that agreed the evidence pointed to this being Becket. By 1949, even the general public had begun to come around to the idea. After that, the church decided to erect a monument on the spot where the bones had been discovered. But first, they decided to open the coffin one last time just to be certain. This time, the skeleton was given to an anatomy professor from St. Bartholomew's Hospital named Alexander Cave. And he came to some much different conclusions. After two years of studying the bones, Cave reported the bones displayed evidence that they had been buried in soil for many years, and that the marks on these bones were likely cuts from a spade resulting from a sloppy exhumation. Even the damage to the skull Thornton reported could be explained away by normal decay over time. Cave's final report expressed major doubts that these were the bones of Thomas Beckett. That is, unless the historical record regarding the details of the man's death were wildly inaccurate. Since then, other people have come forward claiming an entirely different fate for Beckett's remains. In 1997, an English scholar and biochemist named Cecil Humphrey Smith told a reporter for the Times of London that his godfather, Julian Bickersteth, had once witnessed the exhumation of a body near the cathedral's chapel, fitting Thomas Beckett's description. According to Humphrey Smith, the skeleton the unearthed wasn't usually tall, as Thomas Beckett had been and that the remains were missing the right hand, which was reportedly another body part the knights chopped off. But considering this was a, no pun intended, second-hand story, passed on to Humphrey Smith by his godfather, there's no way to determine if it was actually true. It should be pointed out that Bickersteth and Canon John Shirley paid to renovate a couple of the church's chapels during the 1950s. After Shirley died... His ashes were interred in St. Mary Magdalene's Chapel, in a location he'd paid for in advance to have a red lamp shining perpetually on. Although one rumor goes that the red lamp is actually there to symbolize the presence of a martyr's remains, not Shirley's. Specifically, the remains of Thomas Beckett. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thomas Beckett isn't the only saint whose remains were revered long after death. The Catholics have a long history of making a big deal out of the bones of their martyrs. In 1578, some local vineyard workers discovered a hollow along Rome's Via Samaria that led to a massive catacomb. The chamber they uncovered proved to be packed full of enormous stacks of skeletal remains, which everyone presumed were victims of religious persecution during the first three centuries of the emergence of Christianity. It was believed anywhere from half to three-quarters of a million people found their final resting place in the sprawling Roman catacombs. Most of these were Christians, although it's presumed some of them were pagans and Jews as well. But that final resting chamber didn't turn out to be so final after all. Once the Catholic Church caught wind of the discovery, they decided the catacomb could be turned into a nearly endless source of religious martyrs, 
but could be used to restock many local parishes that had lost all their religious artifacts during the Protestant Reformation. These holy corpses became widely prized by Catholic churches throughout Europe. Everyone, it seemed, wanted to get a piece of the action. Wealthy families would scoop up these remains as well and move them to their own private chapels. Although many of these skeletons would be stolen and lost over the centuries, not all of them are gone today. Throughout Europe, you can still find several churches with skeletons that were taken from the Roman catacombs and arranged in elaborate displays. Many of these skeletons are carefully posed, made to sit up in golden thrones, dressed in fine clothing, and covered in gold and jewels from head to toe. There's one particular saint whose bones are still fought over even today. No solid historical records remain of this particular holy man who lived and died in Panera Lycia, an area that is part of present-day Turkey, sometime around the year 280. He was born into a rich family, although his parents died young. After that, the young man reportedly began spending his inheritance to help the poor and the sick. One story goes that this man once tossed three bags of gold into the window of a poor family's home, saving the three daughters inside from being forced into a life of prostitution. Another legend claims he raised three children from the dead after a butcher carved them up and pickled the remains in a vat of brine. Some of these stories may well be apocryphal, but some of the things we do know is that this man was a devout Christian, and he once served as the Bishop of Myra. And that, true or not, the legends of the man's generosity and goodwill he brought to others only continued to grow and grow after his death. As time went on, sailors began praying to this particular saint to bring them good fortune as they ventured out onto choppy waters. After this particular saint died, his remains were treated like holy relics that could bring miracles to people. This was actually a fairly common belief among saints. As I mentioned earlier, practically every church in Europe really wanted to have a saint of their own. Out of the belief that their bones acted like holy antenna, with a direct connection to heaven. Even the parishes that didn't have their saints displayed in above-ground, jewel-encrusted shrines would often build their churches over catacombs where their own saints were laid to rest. This way it was believed the priests could talk directly to a higher power. It probably helped that in some cases some saints' own bodies displayed unusual properties that convinced people they were blessed by God. Some corpses were said to not decay like other human remains. In the case of this particular saint from Myra, it was said that his body began to drip blood that would mysteriously solidify, then turn back into liquid. It was also claimed this magical blood, which was sometimes referred to as manna or myrrh, also smelled like roses and possessed healing abilities. Word spread about the manna from this corpse, and soon thousands of people began flocking to see his tomb in the town of Myra, which would go on to become what is now the city of Demre. All this attention created a lot of jealousy among neighboring cities and churches. By the 11th century, there was actually a thriving trade in holy relics. And if one couldn't obtain those relics through official means, there were plenty of people willing to steal them to get a little piece of that holy action. In fact, theft of holy bones became so common it wasn't even really considered a sin. The common thinking back then was that since these holy skeletons were anointed by God, if the Lord didn't want them to be stolen, then he wouldn't let the theft occur. So that's how Myra lost their most revered saint. When word spread that the city of Myra had recently fallen to the Turks, 
The citizens of the southern Italian town of Barry saw an opportunity they couldn't pass up. According to an account written by a clerk from Barry, three ships sailed into Myra's harbor in 1087. Forty-seven well-armed men marched into the central church and demanded the monks lead them to the saint's tomb. They busted into the sarcophagus and found the skeleton partially submerged in the heavily perfumed manna. They scooped up the remains and all the manna they could carry and sailed them back to Barry, where they became the number one tourist attraction in town. The thieves became famous for what they had done, and the stolen remains really put the town on the map. They built a new basilica to house the saint's skeleton, and this drew in thousands of pilgrims each year throughout the Middle Ages. Even today, the town of Barry remains a major holy pilgrimage site for Roman Catholics and Orthodox Christians alike. Each year, an elaborate festival known as the Feast of Translation is held to honor the arrival of this skeleton in town. One of the highlights of the festival involves the basilica's rector siphoning off a tiny bit of the manna from the sarcophagus in a crystal vial. That perfumed fluid is then mixed with holy water and sold in decorative bottles in Barry's shops. Some people believe the liquid has healing abilities. All that is well and good, but there's yet another story that claims the corpse they've been holding a festival for each year for centuries isn't even the right one. The Venetians claim that back during the First Crusade, some of their sailors snuck into Myra and stole the corpse as well. Since then, both Barry and Venice have both claimed to possess the real set of holy bones. This fight raged on until 1953 when church officials allowed Professor Luigi Martino from the University of Barry to examine the remains to prove they had the right ones. This was the first time the tomb had been officially unsealed in more than 800 years. Martino found that the skeleton was only partially intact and that the remaining bones were wet and disintegrating. What parts did remain allowed the professor to determine that they were those of a man who had died in his 70s. But beyond that, considering he was only given a short time to examine the remains, there wasn't much more Martino could say about them at the time. Then in the 1990s, Martino and some other scientists were allowed to study the bones held by the Venetians. They concluded that the bones Venice had actually came from the very same skeleton on display in Barry. They theorized that the Venetians may have scooped up some stray bones left behind by the sailors from Barry after the initial smash-and-grab job had been done. Strangely, this actually does lend some credence to the idea that both cities really do have pieces of the correct saint's remains on display. At the same time, this still left the town of Demray pretty angry that they were left empty-handed. Remember, the skeleton was theirs first, and even to this day, they want all of it back. This might seem a little odd coming from the country of Turkey, where the population is 99% Muslim. But having this particular saint's remains in their possession is considered a point of pride. In 2009, the Turkish government made a formal request to Rome that the bones be returned to them. But that request was ignored. Then in 2017, Turkish archaeologists made a surprise announcement when they said they had found a hidden, intact tomb beneath the ancient church, and inside that tomb lay the actual saint's remains. Pretty soon, the city of Demre began heavily promoting tourism to their tiny town to come see the real saint's bones. Unlike those fakes, they said resided in both Venice and Barry. You may be wondering by now why all the fuss was made about this particular skeleton. Well, you see, this was no ordinary saint. In fact, over the centuries, this particular saint's legend has grown way beyond its humble beginnings. 
Throughout history, he has been considered to be the patron saint of sailors, wolves, and pawnbrokers, among other things. He has also become known as the patron saint of children as well. As I mentioned, this man was known for his generosity, and stories of the goodwill he brought to others would be shared far and wide throughout Europe. From 1200 to 1500, the man was anointed the official holy bringer of gifts, and feasts would be held in his honor every December 6th. Children everywhere began saying their prayers and being on their best behavior in the hopes of partaking in this saint's legendary generosity. Throughout the centuries, other details would be added on to the man's legend as well. Things like adding a long white beard and granting him magical powers of flight. Attributes commonly associated with other deities like the Roman god Saturn or the Norse god Odin. But after the 16th century Protestant Reformation began, the worship of sainthood really began to evolve. It was decided that children shouldn't be directing their prayers to this particular man, but rather to the baby Jesus. So the official date of worship was pushed back later in the month to the 25th of December. On a date, the church began to officially recognize as Jesus' birthday. But even still, this particular saint's legend didn't fade away, although his role in the holiday certainly did change. The citizens of the Netherlands continued to worship him, and in particular his gift-giving status. During the 19th century, political cartoonist Thomas Nast illustrated a version of the saint that has pretty much become cemented in our collective imagination of a jolly fat man in a red suit carrying a bunch of toys. After that, the legend of St. Nicholas, or Sinterklaas as he was referred to in the Netherlands, went mainstream and became known to children all around the world. Of course, the name Sinterklaas would change too, as it became anglicized into the name we're all familiar with today, Santa Claus. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have a new Patreon supporter to thank. Thanks to Laura for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder that patrons of the show get access to all sorts of bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our exclusive bonus mini-episodes. We have a merch store open now, too, where you can get all your finest Conspirators gear, including phone cases, mugs, pillows, and t-shirts. Beyond all that, another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's charts. And if you're not on Apple, not to worry, The Conspirators is now available on Spotify and plenty of other places where you get your podcasts. Feel free to reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook and let us know how we're doing. You can even send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. I know this has been a rough year for all of us but here's to looking forward to what I hope will be a much better 2021. I personally look forward to bringing you more stories of the strange and bizarre. I really appreciate you sticking with me. Happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and have a Happy New Year.